So when I was in high school, uh, I didn't like riding the bus, okay? Not a fan of the bus, okay? You guys tracking with me already? So I decided to ask people all the time to give me a ride. And one of those people was this cute, blonde-haired, curly-haired girl named Doreen and her brother who went to Faith Heritage. So I said, well, we could spend more time together, right? And, and you could give, us, uh, give me a ride to school because it's on your way uh, from your part of Liverpool through my part of Liverpool all the way down to the glorious south side of Syracuse down to Faith Heritage. So they would pick me up. And uh, immediately there's a personality disconnect between the Goddard household and the Maisie household, okay? Dave Maisie always put in, in, in my brain that if you need to be there by 9, you're there at 8.45. Someone say preach, right? Goddard household, 9 means 9.08, okay? So again, not trying to throw them under the bus. Appreciate the diversity of personalities here, okay? So we just want to appreciate people, all right? But here's the deal. They tell me we're on our way. And immediately, I was doing this out the window. Steaming, sweating, pacing, looking out this window up the street. Maybe they're coming from the other way. Then I thought, you know what? I'm going to save us time. Tick, tick, tick. I was standing in the driveway. Did I stand in the driveway? Bro, I'm getting detention for this. Right? The guy receiving the gift of a ride is now calling everyone out. We're going to get detention. And every week, Matt would say, we're going to make it. And we did. Every day, we made it. Uh, you know, our hair was flown back, and we sprinted to class, but we made it. Bottom line, they said they were coming, but I spent all my time thinking, where are they? <laughs> where are they? They're late. We come to a passage this morning especially after the passage from last week, where John is preaching, a, a bapt, uh, he's preaching repentance and baptizing those who have come to the Jordan, confessing their sins, and he's telling the people, he who is coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? Someone is coming that is, has a more sufficient baptism. It would be easy for us to be looking out the window a little bit. Maybe even the people there are wondering, who is this that's coming? And where is he? Last week, we understood that the one who is coming is Jesus. Jesus is the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire. But where is Jesus? Will Jesus, the one who baptized in the Holy Spirit in fire, will he ever come and the answer is yes. And what will his coming bring uh, to fruition or to a reality for us? And that's what we look at this morning as we turn to Matthew chapter 3. Grab your Bibles, Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. We see that this one who is coming after John has arrived. Listen to these words. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, 
Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. It seems like everybody wants to get baptized in the Jordan River these days. Right? You see all these people coming out from all the surrounding region, and they want to they hear this message of John and they want to get baptized in the Jordan River. Even today. Right? We may, if we follow a little bit of pop culture, we know that a lot of famous people actually go to get baptized in the Jordan River. If you've been following it all pop culture, you know that Demi Lovato recently was baptized in the Jordan River. If you know uh, anything more about cult pop culture, you may know that Mario Lopez, the host of Extra, Extra, <laughs> Saved by the Bell, let's be clear, dating myself, was recently baptized in the Jordan River. Right? Everybody's getting baptized in the Jordan River, right? Uh, Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Houston Texans, baptized in the Jordan River, right? Odell Beckham Jr., wide receiver for the <clears throat> baptized in the Jordan River. Baptized in the Jordan River. Everybody's getting baptized in the Jordan River. And the text tells us that even Jesus is coming to John to get baptized in the Jordan River. But if we look back on what's the significance of coming to John to get baptized in the Jordan River, we might scratch our heads a little bit. Right? Baptism in the Jordan River signified a repentance, a turning away from sin to God. Humble recognition of an uncleanliness about us. So, what does this mean? Why would Jesus come to John in the Jordan to be baptized. Is Jesus coming? Repenting of sin? Confessing a deep need for cleansing? The answer is no. Right? Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. Even John understands this, doesn't he? The text says that John was preventing him. John would have prevented him, verse 14, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? There's an immediate, wait a minute. I don't think you understand who this is for. This is for the repentant sinners who recognize their need for cleansing from God. I understand who you are. You don't need this. You don't need this baptism. You don't need to repent. You're sinless. 
You're perfect. John knows who Jesus is. And John knows who John is, doesn't he? I'm the one that needs your baptism. This is The roles are reversed here. We've got this all backwards. So the text says that John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. He comes with a recognition that he needs Jesus. Jesus doesn't need him. And I wonder this morning if that's where you are today. A recognition that you need Jesus. You need to be baptized by him. You need to be cleansed by him. He doesn't need to be cleansed by you. Right? Jesus is perfect. Not coming to baptism for repentance. This seems backward to John. Doesn't need to be cleansed. But Jesus goes on to say to him, Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is, fulfill, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The text says that then he consented. This back and forth is unique to Matthew's gospel. Right? Each gospel writer records this event, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this event, but Matthew includes this back and forth hesitation. It's unique to him. And this statement that Jesus makes is unique to Matthew. He says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a phrase there we've got to just dig into a little bit. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Just for a moment, let's pause again and be reminded of the fact that in Matthew's gospel, there's an emphasis on fulfillment. Right? That the prophets planted seeds in the Old Testament. And those seeds grew. And flowers would come. Right? And then they would come more as each season went by. And finally, you're seeing this beautiful flower, flowering plant that is revealing its beauty and its glory. That over time, we're seeing the fruition and the fulfillment of these promises that were made long ago. And now, here it is. That's what Matthew's saying in all these prophetic promises that were made. Right? That Jesus is fulfilling these things, all these things that were talked about in the Old Testament. Not only is there emphasis in Matthew's gospel on fulfillment, but there's emphasis on righteousness. This is the first time we're introducing it. Now, we saw it with Joseph. He was a righteous man. Not, uh, uh, he wanted to divorce Mary quietly. Do you remember that? But really, this is the beginning of really Matthew's emphasis on righteousness in his gospel. No need to dig more deep now, but know that that's going to come as we walk through this book together. Righteousness. So what's happening is that this is fitting for now. It may be illogical from a human divine perspective. It may not make any sense to you, John. It may not make any sense to us here now, but understand this. It's fitting for us to do this act of baptism because it serves the fulfilling of all righteousness. What is going on here? Well, let me just be honest with you. There is a ton of discussion about what fulfill all righteousness means. There's a lot of debate. There's pages upon pages of what's going on here. So I don't think I'm going to be able to clarify everything perfectly for you here this morning. 
Especially if we're just faithful to what Matthew is saying. Now, I mean, we could take Paul's understanding of righteousness and bring it in. But that might be distorting it a little bit. What is Matthew getting at here? Why is it fitting for Jesus in this moment? Well, I think D.A. Carson was most helpful. That really when we think about God's righteousness, especially in Matthew, it's talking about God's will, doing God's will. Doing what is right and in, in consistent with the nature of God, His will, His ways, and His purposes. That's what it means to be righteous. And so what Jesus is saying is, it is fitting for us, you and me, John, to do this because it is, it is consistent with the will of God. It is consistent with the plan of God. It is consistent with what He is doing now in the world. And in doing so... I think what we see is an identification that's taking place. That Jesus is identifying himself with John, right? John is the preparer, the forerunner, the voice in the wilderness that's saying, prepare your way for the Lord. Here's the Lord. There's a connection between Jesus and John. And we're going to see that connection next couple weeks with Jesus' central message is going to be what? The same as John's. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But not only that, in this moment, while he does not need to identify, uh, he does not need to repent, he is indeed identifying with sinners in this repentance. Which, as we see in a little bit, we're going to the, the book of Isaiah, that, that for him, the righteous one, to give righteousness, he is going to be a substitute. And right now, he's identifying with sinful humanity in this baptism. He doesn't need it, but he's identifying himself with those who do. Right? He's Emmanuel, God with us. And so to fulfill all righteousness, we see that he is identifying himself with repentant humanity. Those who need repentance. That's a wonderful gospel truth that you don't want to just gloss over. That God has indeed come into the world and identified with us. And that's so important when it comes to understanding the nature and effectiveness of the salvation that we sing about here this morning. That God is identifying with us in Christ. And then, I think simply, he's just identifying himself as the one who will bring about this righteousness. He's the one that will do the will of God. He's the one that will bring about the righteousness that is required. That's me. Really what he's saying is, what nobody else can do, I am doing. I am fulfilling all righteousness. And that should give us great confidence and comfort about Jesus. And so we see here that in Jesus' baptism, he is serving to fulfill all righteousness. That is good news. Especially if we know that we need repentance and we need to be cleansed from our sins, that there's something wrong inside of us, that our greatest need, the thing that we need most is the righteousness of God. That this idea that God has come in Christ to do this, to fulfill all righteousness, to accomplish what none of us are able to accomplish apart from Him, this brings to us such hope and expectation. That even in this, 
inauguration of Christ's life and ministry on earth, we can know this, that he's here to fulfill all righteousness for us unto God. What an awesome thing. He's doing what no one else can do, what only he can do for us. Fulfill all righteousness. Do God's will. Identify with sinful humanity in such a way to bring about their salvation. So in some ways we see that this baptism itself is, is uh, uh, there's fulfillment in it. But what happens when John agrees to do it? And then what we see happening in his baptism is further giving us insight into who Jesus is. Remember Jesus, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, the identity of Jesus is central to Matthew's purpose for us. He wants us to know Jesus. Right? The, the gospel of Matthew, the good news of Matthew that he records, primarily is to bring us face to face with the identity of Jesus. He wants to show us who Jesus really is. And so in this baptism, we see the fulfilling of all righteousness, yes, but we also see a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this with a vision, and we hear this with a voice. A vision and a voice. Verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately, feel the urgency of this. We talk about it slowly, right? Like it's this happened, and then this happened. And this. I want you to see this all, these last few verses just happening. Immediately brings about this, like as he's coming up. So follow it. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Wow. So Jesus comes up from the water. You know, we play, just as I am That was good, right? That's what happens when we come out of the water. Do we do that here? Should we? No? When Jesus comes out of the water, heaven opens. And the Spirit of God, the text says, descends upon him like a dove and came to rest on him. A unique occurrence for a unique identity. You see, when you read these words, the Spirit descending on Jesus, those are like clue words, right? That When they're said to the first century reader, to the Jewish audience, these are clues, oh, and they, they conjure up, oh yeah, remember when the Hebrew scriptures said X, Y, and Z? Like they're clue words. We may not necessarily get them when we, we read them, but the Hebrew reader would have, these were clue words. Uh, we were, uh, our offices used to be up there. We just recently moved to Driver's Village. Uh, they've been gracious to give us a 500 square foot space there that's really working out nice for us. And we were there for some meeting uh, to basically just how to share, how to share Christ with that uh, with that uh, company there, uh, and uh, somebody was talking uh, about 
uh, what's going on at, at Driver's Village, and they happen to say the word, man, that is huge. And I thought, I don't think we can say that here. I don't think we can say huge at Driver's Village, right? Like you guys see, I said huge, and you knew exactly what I was talking about, right? Billy Fernandez of Las Vegas. No, that's his name out there. Uh, Billy Fusillo of Central New York. Huge. Huge-a-thon. I mean, how many years have I been driving down 81, and there's huge right by destiny? I mean, that is a definitive, loaded term that when you say huge, you think Fusillo. So why are we talking about it at Driver's Village, right? And they kind of did one of these and said, you're right, we shouldn't be talking about that here. All I'm trying to illustrate is that's a loaded term. You say huge, Billy. And I think that's fabulous marketing, isn't it, Daly? Be careful what you say. Be careful what you say. Anyway, connotation, loaded term, it makes connections. You read this, it's immediately making connections. What connections are being made here? The descending of the Spirit, resting on Jesus, the affirming voice of heaven. This is my beloved Son, which we haven't even talked about yet. What is going on here? And even as I begin to talk about this, I want you to see that what's happening in the gospel, if we don't slow down and think about these things, is an expanding, a deepening of our understanding of the glorious identity of Jesus Christ. We talk about him as Savior. He saved us. Matthew one twenty one. he will save his people from their sins. This is good that we confess that. But in this passage, we're seeing more that underscores what that means and how that salvation is accomplished. We're hearing and seeing more about the identity of Jesus that's right on the surface. Are you following me? So you may not see it. That's why we slow down. What's going on here? Well, basically, the combination of uh, what we've already addressed, the Spirit coming down and descending on Him like a dove, and this affirming voice from heaven, the combination of this really points to the servant of the Lord from Isaiah. There's a motif in the, in, uh, the prophecy, uh, prophecies given by Isaiah, uh, particularly in chapters 40 through 56, as I understand, uh, really through 53. 40 through 53, there's these four servant songs that are written. And in these four servant songs, there is an identification of someone who the Lord calls the servant, the servant of the Lord. And so, as the reader would engage that text, they'd be asking, well, who is the servant of the Lord? Well, some people thought the servant of the Lord, in the immediate context, was just King Cyrus of Persia. Right? Because in these passages, we see God in his sovereignty and in his providence is able to take a pagan king and use him to bring about his purposes in the world. But based on the fact that he's a pagan king, probably not the servant of the Lord. That's why uh, most people understood at this time in Israel that Israel was the servant of the Lord. And to be honest, the nation of Israel, it's hard to discount them as the servant of the Lord because a number of times, even in this narrative, Isaiah even says, Jacob, calls the servant of the Lord, Jacob, Israel. So in a sense, there is uh, Israel functioning as the Lord's servant. 
But yet if you think about chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, where the people are called out and confronted with their sin, their unfaithfulness, their lack of serving the Lord, it's hard to think that in an ultimate sense, really the servant of the Lord is the nation of Israel. What we're seeing here in the baptism of Jesus is that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the one who will indeed serve the Lord in such a way to bring about his saving work in the world. And we understand that Isaiah 53, kind of the end climax of this, is that the servant of the Lord would come and he would suffer greatly. That he would take upon himself the sins of the world. That he would be righteous, verse 11 of chapter 53, he says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The servant of the Lord would bear the iniquities of the people. The servant of the Lord would make himself available as a righteous one. The one who's fulfilling all righteousness Right? The servant of the Lord would bear that responsibility and, and submit himself to the Father to bring about this plan to fruition. Guys, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. And this comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit Upon him. There it is. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Guys, 750 or so years earlier, this servant of the Lord was promised. And now we see the ultimate and actual fulfillment of such a servant in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will bring forth justice to the nations. He is the one who will bring, as a righteous one, will bring righteousness to those who are in iniquity and sin. This is Jesus. Jesus is the Spirit-empowered servant of the Lord. It's awesome. He's the servant. He's the fulfillment of these things. It's not Cyrus. It's not Israel. It's Jesus. And so Jesus is uh, um, identifying himself as such. He's coming into his ministry, and he is showing himself to be this servant of the Lord, this spirit-empowered servant. He will come and serve humbly. He will atone sacrificially. He will obey perfectly, and he will rule justly. Right? Even there, you see that he is unlike any other ruler who comes in victory, but he comes humbly as a servant. To submit and serve sacrificially for those whom he's called to do so. This is Jesus. He is the servant of the Lord. Filled and empowered with the Spirit of God. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Not only is he the Spirit-empowered servant of the Lord, he is the uh, dearly beloved Son of God. He's the Son of God. 
He's the Son of God the Father. He is dearly loved by God the Father. In these affirming words, we see who Jesus is in relationship to God the Father. He's dearly loved. He's affirmed by the Father. He is God the Son. And, and as a parent, even the way I interact with this, uh, maybe reading into it, but I just can't help but understand that, that kind of affirmation, right? Like, as a parent, I've got three children, and, and, and in this moment, it's almost, you see the intimate connection, relationship, the fellowship of the Father and the Son. You see the Father uh, affirming, the Father uh, conveying His love on the Son, that He loves the Son for who He is. He's always loved the Son for who He is. And He affirms the Son as such. As a dad, one of the most uh, meaningful moments you can have with a child is to just look at a child and say, listen, I want you to know I love you for who you are. Not for what you do, but for who you are. I love you for who you are, and that will never change. For a child to hear that from a father or a parent, it is an unmatchable gift that you can give to someone. And in this moment, you see such intimacy and connection and fellowship and commitment that is conveyed from the Father to the Son. I love you. You are my Son. And it's for us to hear. This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. What an awesome thing that we are really invited into to see as a revelation of who He is. But understand, there's more to this sonship that I think we have to unpackage a little bit. Because this affirming voice that says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased, tells us that He's more than the servant of the Lord, that He is the Son of God. Which calls to mind, back to the clue words again, right? We're reading this. You are my Son. Goes to Psalm 2, verse 7. Understood to be a a messianic psalm, right? Expectations of the Messiah. We've been heard of this uh, city that will be established by God and a king that will be placed on the holy hill. Who is this? Right in verse 7, the Son of God. The Son of God is that person. He says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This idea of sonship also goes through the covenant of David, where he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're talking about one of David's sons who would be on the throne, right? He will be a what? Son to me, the Messiah. He will be a son to me. First two chapters in the birth narratives, that which is conceived in you is what? From the Holy Spirit. Yes, he is the son of David. Yes, he is the son of Abraham. Yes, he is the son of Joseph. But understand this, his being is understood to first and and primarily be son of God. That which is conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, but Jesus is the beloved son of God. And those are titles that tell a ton about his nature, that his unique nature as the servant of the Lord, as the son of God, Really what that is telling us is that Jesus is God 
I don't know how much clearer we need to be about Christ's identity. Jesus is God. That's who he is. He's not a son just now. He's not being adopted as the son. Oh, I adopt you as the son. Today, you're, you're my son. No, he has eternally existed as the son because he's God. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This pleasure isn't something new. The father's always been pleased with the son through eternity past and into eternity future. This is Jesus and eternity. A being co-eternal with the Father. This is who Christ is. And he's being affirmed publicly in human history as the eternal Son of God. He's God. There's so much talk about uh, who is Jesus fundamentally. Is he just a man who teaches? Is he just a moral example for us to follow? Is he like your best buddy when times are tough? Understand this, please, from Matthew's gospel. Jesus is God. He is the one true God, the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father. He's God. There is no other. Back to Isaiah chapters 40 through 53. There's only one God. There is no other. I am the Lord. That's Jesus. He's God. He needs to be worshipped and honored and obeyed and treasured and cherished as this. He's God. He's the God above all gods. And yet here he is, humbly submitting himself, identifying with sinners, fulfilling all righteousness. Man, I don't know about you, but that just raises my confidence level in the things that are being promised to us. He's God, man, He's God with us to save us. He's a servant of the Lord, the son of the living God. Affirmed by the Father. Loved by the Father. What does that mean about our approach to him? What we think about him. So we see he's God. And in Christ's baptism, we see the spirit of God. We see the son of God. And we see the Father, the Trinity. At work. Don't miss this. The Trinity. And don't try to figure it out in some human illustration with like fire, water, vapor, I don't know. Right? You get in trouble. You get in big trouble. You start coming up with crazy chemist illustrations for the Trinity. You start going, something seems wrong about this. Well, because there is. You can't illustrate the Trinity in human terms. Here's what we need to know about the Trinity. Just a brief excursus on the Trinity. There's only one God. We're monotheistic. One God. We don't, there aren't three gods here. Father, Son, Spirit. We don't have three gods. Okay? One God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. But this one God exists in three distinct persons. Oneness, threeness. Got to have them both. Three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And third, each person is fully God. 
fully God. You say, well, jeepers, how do I figure that out? Well, it's going to take some time to just meditate on those three things and try to bring them together. But these are the things that we hold dear in historic Orthodox Christianity. This is the Trinity. In most heresy, most falsehood comes off a goofed up understanding of the triune God. So it's important for us to just pause for a moment. See it though. Let's not get into too much like theological like humdrum here. What we see is the Trinity at work in identifying Christ for who he is. He's God. He's God, the servant of the Lord. He's the son of God the Father who loves and affirms him. He's God. And in many ways, while this is about the, you see the Trinity, it's to affirm the identity of Christ. This is about Christology. This is about putting Jesus forward as God, co-eternal, co-equal with him. That's the emphasis, because Matthew wants us to see who Jesus is. But this has been progressively revealed throughout all the Bible. Where do we get the Trinity from? Just read the Bible beginning to end. And in here, you get a clear picture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe this would be helpful, a quote from Ligonier. Hopefully it makes its way up on the screens here. The Christian faith is not polytheistic, confessing many individual gods, each with its own peculiar divine nature. The Christian faith is not Unitarian, confessing that one divine nature is possessed by a single person or a single acting object. Instead, the Christian faith says that three distinct persons are the one divine nature in its entirety. The Father possesses all that makes God who He is. The Son possesses all that makes God who He is. And the Spirit possesses all that makes God who He is. We do not worship three gods, each of whom has his own power, his own intelligence, and so on. Instead... We worship three persons who hold in common the same power, the same intelligence, and so on. Oneness, one God. Threeness, three persons, each person fully God. Yes, it will take more thought and research and study on Scripture to understand this more fully. Amen? But don't miss it here. We get the Trinity. We're seeing it here, for sure. But again, to not miss the forest through the trees here, what does this show us? The triune God is at work in the world. Do you hear what I said? Let me say it a little bit more, uh, with a little more impact to you personally. The triune God is working interdependently to bring about your salvation. Yes, Christ is the Emmanuel, God with us. Christ is uniquely the one who is God and man. Christ has a unique role in our salvation. But don't think for one minute that it's just all about Jesus. It's all about God, three in one. Our salvation is a Trinitarian project. It's a Trinitarian action. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are bringing about all of God's purposes to save His people. Is your confidence going up in its effectiveness? The Trinity 
is working in concert, in unity, to save you from sin. Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, why do we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Ah, because salvation is Trinitarian. Name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's powerful. And even in saying this, I'm going to just go another layer. Understand what salvation is accomplishing for you. Salvation is not just, and I'm not trying to minimize the gift. Salvation is not just, I'm free, I'm not, I don't have sin anymore, and I don't have to go to hell. Man, that is an amazing gift. Don't miss, repent, turn from sin, turn to God, and Him washing you clean. That is a beautiful picture of the gospel. But don't just think that's it. I don't have to go to hell. As if salvation is some ticket that says, don't got to go there. No, salvation is a work of the Trinity that brings you into relationship with the Trinity. It brings you into fellowship with the eternal God that's always lived in perfect loving fellowship. It's the nature of salvation, right? That the Son is here in the world to bring this about as the servant of the Lord who gives himself, who lays down his life, who dies on a cross as a sinless, perfect human being, as the Son of God, as the the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. He accomplishes all of this to bring us into a fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. We're in fellowship with the triune God. That's what your God says, Demi Lovato, her God-sized hole that she talked about at baptism is really, she, whether she understands it or not, I'm not going to say anything about that right now, but understand, we often miss this, that the real hole, what's really missing in us is a relationship with the triune God. That's what we were made for. That's what we've been redeemed for. Because of Christ, we know the Father, we know the Son, and we know the Spirit of God. Radically transforming who we are as a people. Now that may not make you a better worker come Tuesday that gives your boss so much, give you so much approval at work. I mean, he's like, how does this apply to my life? Guys, if this doesn't apply, nothing else applies. This is the basis and foundation for everything about human existence in the temporary and in eternity. Relationship with the triune God. You were made for this, and you've been saved for this. And he is bringing it about. God as the architect, son as accomplisher, spirit as applier of salvation. And ultimately, as the son prays to the father, may the love that we have shared be in them. What he's saying is, bring them into what we know in this interdependent trinity throughout all of eternity. Bring them into it. That's what they need. That's the seremity for their sin and their brokenness. Relationship with the triune God. And I'm willing to give myself, my life, my perfect offering unto you, God, in this world to bring about that plan. So if you're wondering today, what is life all about? It's about relationship with God, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
What is Jesus securing for us? What is he initiating here in his baptism? A journey to the cross which purchases for you a relationship with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Only the servant of the Lord could bring that about. Only the Son of God could do that for you. We don't have options at a religious buffet table to choose from. There's the servant of the Lord. There's the Son of God. There's Emmanuel. If you don't have your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, you cannot grab a hold of these blessings. There is no hope for you. There's no expectation. You need Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you do, if you see Jesus for all that he is, if that's been deepened for you and widened, if, let me say it differently. If God can do that, you think about all that you face in your life right now, all the things that are overwhelming, that are disappointing, that are exciting, that you're not sure you have what it takes for, all that you face in this life, you think, man, who's going to help me? Who's going who's gonna to get me through that? Right? If God, set that aside for a minute, if God can redeem you from sin and brokenness and draw you back into intimate connection and fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. If God can bring that about in your life, tell me He can't help you with the other details. Tell me that's not sufficient to give you hope and expectation that no matter what you face, from the, from the major to the minute, that God is not able and faithful to provide all that you need in this life and in the life to come. I think at the end of the day, so what, is, what is the application here? Confidence, trust, knowledge, more of it, deepened, widened. So the more we understand Christ, the more we're able to, to trust and, and commit and rest in Him. So this is who he is. Jesus is the spirit-empowered servant of the Lord. He's the dearly loved son of God. Do you know him as such? Do you trust him? Do you confess him? The father says, this is my son. Can we confess what the Father confesses? This is the Son of God. Trust Him. Know Him. I give myself to Him. I lay aside everything this world offers. Radical obedience and radical commitment. Total trust and joy. The Father loves the Son. Do you love the Son? I think the more we get to know Him, the more we love Him. The more we trust Him. That's my hope today. Jesus is the spirit-empowered servant of the Lord. And he is the dearly loved son of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that as exciting as this sounds, I pray that we would not just be filled with excitement. I pray that for every person here, 
that uh, you would just enable them by your spirit to see and to trust Christ for all that he is. Spirit, fill us. And because of Christ, we pray the Father would affirm us. Reassure us of your great love. Reassure us of your plan. Give us hope and expectation that if you can do the biggest thing, restore us back to you, you can take care of everything. All praise and glory be to you. In Christ's name, amen.